0: I feel like everything you go through in life, whether it's people you meet or experiences you have, you may not recognize it at the time, but later on down the line in your life, you'll be like, oh, wow, that's why that happened to me then, so I could do this now.
1: You're listening to Femmechanic Garage, the podcast that features women in the automotive and motorsports industries. A community that elevates, empowers, and evolves by smashing stereotypes and breaking down barriers for women. I'm your host, Jamie Blossman. Buckle up for the ride, Femmechanics. Calling all women who love their ride. I would like to introduce you to a -a one-of-a-kind women's motor fest. You will not want to miss this sisterhood celebration of women-owned whips. Cars, trucks, motorcycles, ATVs. If it has a motor, it belongs. Ladies, this is our motor fest. Boys are welcome to attend but the spotlight will be owned by the women in their whips. Check out all the details by visiting womensmotorfest.com. Taylor Ferns is in the driver's seat today. Taylor is an accomplished race car driver, law student, writer, race team owner, and businesswoman. She started her racing career at a young age and throughout her 20-year racing tenure, has won numerous races, championships, awards, and set many records. Her awards read like a sizzle reel. Taylor is a United States Auto Club champion, the youngest female driver to win a sprint car race, the first female to win USAC midget and sprint car races at many different racetracks. Now let's sit back and enjoy the ride. Hello FemCanics, this is Jamie B coming to you and I have Taylor Ferns in the driver's seat today. How are you doing today, Taylor? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. So let's see here. I'm in Ohio and it's a little chilly up here. And you are in a t shirt, my friend. And I think that's because you are a little further down south now.
0: Yes. I um I just flew down to Florida.
1: That's terrible. That's just a terrible thing.
0: Yeah. After I completed my law finals last week, I flew down to Florida, I believe on Saturday. So grateful to spend the holidays down here with my family and some close friends of ours. So uh, yeah, I'll be in the warm weather until... Early Jan, and then I leave for Oklahoma to race the Chili Bowl. So I'll,
1: I'm going to embrace the warm weather while I can. <laughs> Absolutely. I've been following you for a minute. We caught up a couple different times at different events, and timing happened to work out well right now. So here we are having this conversation. And I told you in the pre interview that your story fascinates me in that a lot of times, when we look into the day job of females that are race car drivers, you kind of see this very similar path along automotive or motor sports. It doesn't like venture too far off from that. Sometimes it does, but your story fascinated me because we'll just let the cat out of the bag. What is it that you do for your day job?
0: Yeah, so my day job right now, um, I've just migrated from being an operations director at a well-known law firm, the San Bernstein Law Firm in the Metro Detroit area, into now I'm almost uh, like a student attorney, if you will. I'm more of a, a, in a legal role at a law firm, going to law school, still racing. I'll be back racing full-time uh, next season, which means like 20-plus races a year. So yeah, just do a little bit of everything.
1: Wow. My favorite all-time question, and I think of my guests like when they were little girls and there's these stereotypes around what little girls play with when they're little and what they dream to be when they grow up, right? So I always like going back there and kind of in that space and headspace and ask, did you always know that you were going to be in motorsports?
0: Yeah, 100%. I come from a racing family. Uh, My uncles on my maternal side uh, raced late models and stock cars throughout the 80s and early 90s, so before I was even born. In my family, we celebrated Daytona 500s like traditional American families celebrate the Super Bowl. And I just remember, like specifically, when I was three or four years old, we were watching a NASCAR race, Jeff Gordon, Dale Earnhardt going around the track. And I remember just watching the race and just being like, I'm going to have something to do in motorsports. I didn't know what that was because at the time there were no visible females within racing. Um, but I was like, I'm going to do something in racing. I was like, I, I mean, I was a kid, right? Like basically a toddler. I don't know. Was I going to be a crew chief, a mechanic? And then here we are. I'm a race car driver now. So um Yeah. Where did that start? Did you start
1: in like karting then?
0: Yeah, so I started racing when I was six years old um, in what they call quarter midgets, which is basically like a go-kart, but there's a roll cage around it. Um, And they basically just have like lawnmower engines. And my dad and my uncle had found a quarter midget for sale in nearby Lansing, Michigan, which is only like an hour and a half from where I grew up. Um, And so we drove up there. My entire family hopped in the vehicle, drove to Lansing, and I sat in the quarter midget for the first time. And literally, there's no exaggeration, I probably sat in the car for like an hour. And then my dad was like, okay, Taylor, it's time to go. And then they had to pull me out of the car. But it was just like instant butterflies. Like, I always tell people, like, my first love is racing, so... (laughs) So yeah, started racing when I was six and then just became addicted. Taylor, do you have any siblings? Yeah. So I have a younger sister. We're 18 months apart. And Megan raced as well. And I have a younger brother as well. Um, and Jimmy raced a little bit as well. But they kind of, as we went up the ranks, when I turned 12, I started racing more in the United States Auto Club, the USAC division. So started racing the midgets and sprint cars and things of that nature. And My siblings just thought I was crazy for going racing cars at that speed. And they had decided that they were done at that point.
1: (laughs) So let's educate some of the listeners because they may or may not know. So when you say racing at those speeds, let's elaborate a little bit.
0: Yeah. So now my sprint cars, depending on the surface and what variation of sprint cars I'm racing, like they can go up to 160 miles an hour. Uh, my Silver Crown cars, I think when we raced them at Gateway this past summer, I think we are topping 176, 180-ish, which in an open-wheel car on a mile and a quarter track is insane. But even when I was 13, 14, the cars that I was racing could go 120 miles an hour, just depending on what track we were at.
1: And At 13 and 14 years old. That's insane.
0: Yeah. And then the horsepower to weight ratio really with the open wheel cars is what's really crazy. Is because the cars would be anywhere, like midgets are anywhere from three to 400 horsepower. And they could weigh, they weigh around a thousand pounds, give or take a few with driver. And depending on what series or track you're racing at. And then sprint cars are near 900 horsepower. They could be anywhere upwards to 940, 950 horsepower. And the cars only weigh 1,500 pounds with driver. So the ratio, that's what's so wild about open wheel cars.
1: Again, I like bringing the listeners and get their visual in their brain. When I started this podcast, Taylor, I learned real quickly how ignorant I was to really the breadth of motorsports, right? Like I grew up in a family that loves cars, loves motorsports, but you don't really realize sometimes you get in your little areas of focus, if you will, your favorites, Mm -hmm. and you sometimes don't look beyond that. And when I started interviewing women, I'm like, holy mackerel, there are a lot of different verticals to motorsports so just to make sure the listener is following along here when you say sprint cars what do those look like because you mentioned open wheel
0: so um i guess the best comparison and like for the best visual of what the listeners or like a consumer may know is they're probably familiar maybe with an Indy car. Um, so an IndyCar is an open-wheel type car. As history goes, like back in the 70s and 80s, like when the Mario Andrettis and the Unzers and the Buttonhousens, they all came from USAC Racing, the United States Auto Club, which is the sanctioning body of Sprint Cars, Silver Crown Cars, midgets. But USAC also used to sanction Indy cars. So the Silver Crown Series and the Sprint Cars used to be a major feeder series for IndyCar car. And so, with that, the open wheel cars, as far as the ones that I might be referring to as midgets, sprint cars, or silver crown cars, I would just kind of say picture an indie car almost, I guess, to visualize it, but with basically a roll cage around it. My open wheel cars, like the sprint cars, don't have all the fluff with like the extra bodies on the right side and left side that kind of for like downforce purposes. But basically we just have a roll cage and then the engine, it's a front engine vehicle and we sit in the middle of the car and we have nerf bars basically all around the car, like front bumpers, rear bumpers, nerf bars on the right and left side. And as far as open wheel goes, that just means that there isn't any like coverage, if you will, or like body panels or whatnot covering our tires, like how you might be able to visualize a late model.
1: Gotcha. And thanks, that helps. because i If that helps at all. <laughs> absolutely. I just want to make sure we bring them along with it. Now, as far as surface that you race on, you race on just pavement, no dirt, correct? So I race on both. So with sprint cars,
0: silver crowns, midgets, you can race on pavement and dirt surfaces. Two different cars though, like you have to have a dirt specific car, and a pavement specific car. But yeah, race on different surfaces. And with the sprint cars, there's different variations too. So um, like when I say my non wing pavement sprint car, that doesn't have a wing on the top of it, like how um, for listeners, if they've seen like the world of outlaws, which used to be televised on TV, those are wing dirt sprint cars. And so sprint cars, there's so many different variations. So this might open like tumbleweed into some, a greater conversation, but, um, there's wing dirt sprint cars, there's non-wing dirt sprint cars, there's non-wing pavement sprint cars, and then wing pavement sprint cars. So, and then there's different engine variations and I probably just went down a big rabbit hole.
1: (laughs) No, you're all good, Taylor. I kind of wear two hats. Part of me, when I listen to my guests talk and when I listen to you talk about going 160, 170 miles an hour, right? And then the idea of you being 13 or 14 years old with the potential of going 120 miles an hour, I put my mom hat on and I'm like, holy crap. I don't know if I would want my kid doing that, even though I love racing, I personally would love to go 120, 150 miles an hour. Like last year for a birthday gift, my family got me a racing experience for Willow Springs out in California, and I got to rent a Porsche Boxster. Loved it. I have ADHD, Taylor. When I was on the track going over 100 miles an hour, it was one of those moments where my thoughts just slowed down. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And for someone who has ADHD to have a moment where it's almost like meditation like that, Mm -hmm. it slows down for you. Everything slows down. When I played sports, it was the same thing, Yeah, right? Some people get real bad anxiety. For me, everything just slows down. Mm -hmm. So there's two hats there, right? The mom hat and the, oh yes, get me in the car and let me go fast hat, right? First of all, it's clear to me, what you like. Yeah. Now, yeah. what about your parents? Now, I know you grew up in a racing family, mm-hmm. but I imagine there's still some reservation there to some degree.
0: Yeah. So my parents, obviously they love racing. I almost say just as much as I do, but I think that's a hard bar to set because I'm pretty obsessed. But yeah, my parents are have been really supportive throughout my racing career. Obviously it got to a point to where I was racing these super fast cars on these big tracks and going at obscene speeds to where, like when I tested a stock car at Daytona, I think we are going 184 in the draft. And I think my dad said that he just kind of had to turn away because you just never know. But at the end of the day, my parents obviously know the risks that are involved in the nature of racing and still have been really supportive of that. But I think my mom still, even though she's accustomed to Uh, maybe like the anxiousness of or the nervousness of watching her daughter out on the track going at these speeds. Um, I still think she kind of can be a nervous wreck. But I know that she believes in my uh, talent level and my skill level. And so I think that kind of brings her a sense of comfort just with all the experience that I have. Um, And then also like the faith in the other competitors that I'm racing against and like, I think maybe that makes them feel more comfortable because they know that I'm racing with experienced people who obviously are super skillful and what they're doing. Um, and I'm racing against some of the best race car drivers in the country. So I think that maybe brings some, a calmer sense to them.
1: Have you ever had an accident? Yes. I think if you talk to a race car driver
0: and they say that they've never crashed, you would have to question their credibility, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, Yeah. I, um, I've had a few incidents more. So I feel like racing the dirt stuff. I feel like, um, tumbling and going end over end and airborne is more of a common occurrence than more so racing pavement stuff. But yeah, I've had my fair bout of accidents, I'd say.
1: And I'm just curious because I can't even imagine like, I'm trying to form the words here because I'm envisioning this. Have you ever experienced anything like PTSD or anything like that? Like after you have an accident, trying to get back out on the track again and clear your head and be as aggressive as you were before?
0: So I think if I ever had an occurrence like that, it probably was when I was um, like seven or eight years old. So just like a year or two after I started racing, um, I'd gotten into an accident, which this rarely happens, but it would happen to me. I broke my leg in a quarter midget accident. And so I was out of the seat for like maybe three or four months. Cause I both broke both my tibia and my fibia, to where I had to have surgery on it. And I just remember like, for me, the PTSD was going to the track and watching my siblings racing and I wasn't able to race. And so that's where I had a really hard time, but this might give you an example of how much my parents love racing and maybe how crazy they are too, because I was leading the points in a certain division that I was in. And between the time that I broke my leg and the next race for that series, I hadn't really missed a race until I got my walking cast on and they let me race with my walking (laughs) cast on. Because it was my brake foot. And so they're like, oh, she's not going to need her brakes, really. <laughs> and I could still push to the point to where my car would stop. Like, I still had that type of strength in my left leg with my cast on. <laughs> and so they let me race. I ended up winning the championship. But after I came back from that, I don't really like bringing my nerve levels like to the surface. Or I don't really say if I'm anxious or anything. But my dad did kind of say... I would never put you in something that you like could potentially like get super hurt in. So obviously anything greater than breaking your leg, I would presume. And so I guess that maybe he was trying to bring me a sense of comfort, but I mean, it didn't really help. I just wanted to go out and race and win and whatnot, but. Now the irony of this is he stopped saying that probably when I turned 14 because (laughs) no one really talks about the dangers of the type of open wheel racing that we're in, but it's obviously there. But I think all of us, like even my competitors say, we love what we're doing. And I was actually thinking about this recently. I was like, this might be like a little extreme, but I went without racing for like three or four years. And it was probably like the toughest time of my life, honestly, throughout college and like, I would rather, like, it's almost to the point where, like, I would rather die than not race again, type of thing, because that's how strong, like, my obsession is and my addiction is with racing. Because I just love being involved with it.
1: And I want to backpedal a little bit, Taylor. You said those were the hardest years. Now you took the time off because you're going to college. Is that right? Yes. Yes. College can be challenging, but why? were those the hardest times for you? What made it so hard to step away from it? I mean, I understand you love it and you enjoy it, but help me piece this together a little bit.
0: Yeah. So I took like three years off from motorsports because I was at that point in my career to where I was around 18, 19. I had lived in Indiana on and off throughout my high school years Um, And so after I graduated from high school, I moved down there. I was living down there for like a year, year and a half. And then it got to the point in my career to where if I was to go any further, like racing takes a lot of monetary investment. And I was kind of at that stepping point where if I was to go any further, like I was going to need millions of dollars in sponsorships. Or just a really large uh, monetary backing in order to pursue, like whether it was stock cars, like ARCA or NASCAR, or go or go more so the IndyCar route, like Indy Lights, IndyCar, and um, it got to the point to where my family was just like, you know what? Like I was nineteen, time to focus on my education, and so I transferred to a university in Grand Rapids, which is Grand Valley State University. And, um, at that point I w- had gone from being surrounded by all my motorsports friends in Indiana and like being involved in working at the race shop every single day and just like living the motorsports lifestyle. And then when I had moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, basically surrounded by people who had no idea what motorsports was, or they just weren't like maybe mechanically inclined and um basically like starting over in a way but i almost had felt like the rug was pulled out from underneath me because here i am like i come from this lifestyle that i was around like all my motorsports friends and whatnot and then it was just like a complete 180 and then it was like i couldn't even talk about racing cuz no one knew about it no one really knew about cars and i grew up in a car family my dad always had growing up like classic muscle cars and so it was just kind of like reacclimating, if you will, to just a completely different perspective of the world, I guess, just people with different experience that didn't come from the same backgrounds as I. And so doing that for like three years when I was in Grand Rapids and I always kind of explain to people that being in motorsports and growing up was almost like having the Hannah Montana lifestyle, literally, (laughs) because going to like a normal high school in Macomb, Michigan with, again, people not surrounded by um, motorsports or knowing much about race cars, it was like I'd go to school, live this life. And then on the weekends, I was like some superstar at the racetrack. And then when I'd come back to school, you couldn't talk about how the race went or anything because no one really understood it, right? Like, I remember one girl um, one day had asked me how my race had went. And I was like, oh, you know, it went all right. Like I finished fifth, but like we had some engine issues or whatnot. And I mean, it's like I finished fifth out of like 24 guys, right? So a top five isn't bad. But she had turned to me and said, wow, you must suck. Because people have this perception that if you're not winning, that you're not great, but you don't people don't understand like all the competition, all the variables that go into it and whatnot. So that's kind of what how old would you have been at that point? I was 15. Yeah,
1: I was 15. Wow, that's interesting. You're not the first person who mentioned that in when I've talked to him about almost feeling like they're living this double lifestyle. Yeah. Brianna Lynch, I had interviewed her and her dad has been stunts in Hollywood her entire life, right? So she had the opportunity to get into it really early. Mm-hmm. She shared a similar experience where people just didn't understand. And especially other girls didn't understand. Yeah. Was there a difference for you in what the reaction was like from girls in your school versus boys?
0: Well, that actually that one specific instance that I was just telling you about, that was actually from a girl that I went to high school with. But as far as the comparison and the reactions when I would tell people, um, or between the two genders, I think it was equally the same. Like when you first tell people, Oh, I'm a race car driver, or, I think anyone in general, they would just react and say, Oh, wow, that's cool. Mm -hmm. Now the matter of understanding whether that was there, like went into that, I would say was probably on the same standpoint, just because of like the area that I grew up around, I kind of grew up in the suburbs of Detroit. I mean, yeah, that's big three auto manufacturing area. But at the same point in time, like it was really not like heavily like motorsports influence. So that's why I would just always revert to explaining to people like the Hannah Montana lifestyle. Cause when you'd come back to class, you had kind of had to put on your regular schoolgirl attitude and just kind of act like racing wasn't even a part of your life, you know? And so that's when I would reciprocate, like when I was at Grand Valley, like it was basically the same experience. Like you almost kind of have to shelf like the racing motorsports side of you just because I was basically around the same people that I went to high school with, you know.
1: Do you think that's the same experience men and women both experience that when they're pursuing their motorsports dreams?
0: You know, I think so, honestly. And the reason why I say that is because when I talk to, like, my male teammates – Um, This is how I try to get like a variation in perspective, because I'll talk to my male teammates, so we can kind of see what's different between the two genders, I guess. But they kind of always say the same thing, like when I would kind of tell them my philosophy about the differences like in our lifestyle, like between school or at work, and then going to the racetrack they would say the same thing. And people at their high schools would have the same reactions as what I would receive. And they grew up in Indiana too, which is like a heavily influenced open wheel motorsports area. And I found that really surprising actually. Um, But I guess you just don't know beggars can't be choosers, I guess.
1: Yeah. So here you are, you took a hiatus from motorsports to focus on your undergrad. Mm -hmm. Now, did you jump back into it when you started pursuing your master's? Not
0: right away. I graduated college in 2018, and I immediately started working at the San Bernstein law firm right after. And it wasn't until maybe almost like six months later, and I had already started my master's program that fall to where I had came home from work and my parents surprised me that they bought the same non-wing pavement sprint car that I had had when I was 14. And I had won a bunch of races with it and so on and so forth. So I had a lot of history with the car. And it was kind of like a, a surprise, if you will.
1: Oh, it was the actual one? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's cool.
0: Yeah. So they had found it. It was in some guy's barn that just coincidentally lived down the street from my teammates in Indiana. And so my crew chief and close friends of ours went down there to look at it. And my dad had some like secret way of knowing that it was the car based on like some decal that was on it or something. And yeah, they found it and they surprised, and my parents surprised me with it. The irony of this is my dad was like, okay, we're just gonna like, you know, we'll start racing again a little bit next year, which the following year was 2019, And we're just going to do like five, six races a year. And it'll just be a fun family thing. (laughs) And so then I'm going to kind of fast forward a bit. And I raced like five or six races in 2019. I didn't race at all 2020 because of COVID and the schedules were all wonky. And then I raced like five or six races again in 2021. But then here we are this past season, I think I raced like 18 or 20 races and like now next year i'm like going full-time essentially again which it'll be like my first full racing season since 2015
1: what's that like for you like anticipation for that um as far as like anticipation for next season goes going from hey we'll just do five or six to here you are going at it full-time racing Mm -hmm. because where my head goes when i hear full-time And day job. It's like, how does that work? Like, if I'm a listener, that's where my head's at. How do you do both? Yeah. So it was actually,
0: like, I'll even say, really hard coming back, like, my first year, like in 2019, because I was going for my master's. I was working full time gig as an operations director. So there's a lot. I'll let people make assumptions on all that comes with that, like basically a little bit of everything. And then I was also studying for the LSAT and applying to law school. And so I specifically remember I'd be studying for the LSAT on how to do like logic games on the way to Fort Wayne to race a sprint car race. Like the five or six races that year were probably enough for what I was doing at that point in time. But even now, as it like has tumbleweeded, like now I'm part time at my law firm because I'm a full time law student. Um, but I feel like at the end of the day, like I knew as soon as like I started back racing again that that's like what I was meant to be doing. And so, I mean, I've always known that. But like once you start back and like you get the urge again to race again, and after being out of the seat for so long, because um, there was like a point in time that I didn't even think I was gonna race again. Now to the point to where like, I know racing is like my absolute passion. Like I know that's kind of like somewhat of what my purpose is. And so it's worth to me maybe sacrificing a little bit or giving a little bit on the other ends as far as like maybe my job goes or maybe like sacrificing a little bit of time on schoolwork or like my personal life to focus more so on my motorsports career.
1: There's a couple things that stick out when I listen to your story, Taylor. One of them is, which I think is what a great lesson in your story, is that sometimes you have to take a step back and walk away Mm -hmm. in order to get back into it the way you had always wanted to. Yeah. So here you shared earlier that the next step for you when you were 18 is really bigger money, bigger sponsorship that's needed to go to that next level. Mm -hmm. You took a break from it. You got your undergrad. You started working at a law firm and correct me if I'm wrong, but they're one of your main sponsors. Is that right?
0: Yeah, no, for sure. So talk about how life comes full circle. Right. And I think at the end of the day, like reflecting on it, like I'm a big into cliches, like everything happens for a reason. Rome wasn't built in a day. Like I always am like giving this off to like these philosophies off to my friends and stuff like that, just because I so believe it's true. And I also talk about a lot, like the foundations of life. I feel like everything you go through in life, whether it's people you meet or experiences you have, you may not recognize it at the time, but like later on down the line in your life, like you'll be like, oh wow, that's why that happened to me then. So I could do this now, you know? And so I just feel like, when I was younger, doing the things that I did, working with Lynn St. James, and then uh, racing up until I was like nineteen, and having the experience at such a young age to live on my own and gaining those kind of life skill sets, and then kind of going off and getting my education, and now I'm working at this law firm, and now they sponsor my car. Like it's just like so crazy how all this stuff has like happened. It, to me at such a young age and how it's benefiting me now I just turned 27 last week like I hope a lot of time left on my card to to just see where all this leads to just because like I just said before like the foundations of life like everything that I've learned growing up has gotten me to this point growing up like my parents recognized that motorsports was my passion before I even really I feel like realized it like when I was 12 like I remember my dad saying yeah like We do this all for Taylor because she's so passionate about racing. Racing is her passion, and I thought to myself, I didn't even really know what that was. Like, not to sound ignorant, but I was a preteen, right? I just did it because it was what I loved to do. Like, I realized at the time that that's what I loved to do. And I had already sacrificed so much time into doing it. But then after like, I took some time away and I was still basically obsessed with racing and missed it so much and realized that that was such a big part of my life. And then now coming back and doing it, it's like I can truly say racing is my passion because of everything that comes with it, all that I love about it. Yeah, it's been like a big factor of my life for almost 21 years now. But I do think like taking that time off is helping me now garner sponsorship or like meeting you, Jamie, when I was doing a professional speaking engagement, you know, at the Automotive Hall of Fame and being able to network and establish these relationships. Now I'm trying to like pass that on to younger generations and mentoring younger girls because I was taught all this and learned all this stuff at such a young age. It's like, okay, if something ever happens to me, like what? I need to like pass this on. This is basically free knowledge. I need to pass this on to somebody else. Like what am I going to do? Just keep this with me my <laughs> for the entirety of my life, right?
1: So now I'm also starting to mentor younger girls too. That's amazing. And there's two big themes that I'm seeing in your journey and storyteller. One I just shared, right? That sometimes as hard as it is, you have to take a step back, mm-hmm. one step back in order to do five steps forward. When you're in the moment, it's hard to sometimes see that that's a good thing yeah, because it can be frustrating. But there's a second thing that you talked about that I'm not even sure that you realize the part of your story that is very, very powerful because it's just you being you and you just living And being your passion. Yeah. And what that part is that I'm going to talk about. And I I get caught up in it too because we're all asked at a young age, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right. You're asked that when you're 18. It's just a slightly different conversation. Where are you going to go to college? What are you majoring in? What, right? It's a similar question asked a little differently. Yeah. But what's interesting about what you're sharing here, and I can really relate to it because. Just under a decade, I was a financial advisor for Morgan Stanley. And then I shifted gears and got into program management. And you do this dynamic thing and we're all in search of that coming home, Mm -hmm. that thing that you knew you were meant to do and you can't explain it to anyone else. You feel it. You love it. You can spend everything hours doing it. It feels like only 10 minutes passed because you love doing it that much. You could do it in the morning, noon, night, it doesn't matter. You love the people that are a part of it. Right. Right? You just love everything about it. But what the people on the outside yeah, looking in see is that you spend all your time doing it that you're making sacrifices, mm-hmm. right? And when you're doing in just emerged in your passion. I always challenge people and ask them, is it really a sacrifice? I don't know about you, Taylor, but when you're at the track and what you described when you were in Indiana, you love the people you were surrounded with. It just so happens that those people have the same passions as you, Mm -hmm. that you work with them during the day. And they're the same people you would go out and maybe have cocktails with after work because you enjoy their company. You have a common thing, common interests. So I would challenge people, one, is it really making a sacrifice? Because people say sacrificing your social and not spending as much time with your family or not spending as much time with your air quotes friends. And it's like, is it though? Yeah. Is it? Because you're loving what you're doing and who you're spending your time with. Yeah. So is it a sacrifice? And that's what I love about what you shared, Taylor, because it is clear to me in listening to you speak that is a coming home for you. You are doing exactly what you were meant to be doing in your life, what you were put on this earth to do.
0: Yeah. And what's so crazy about that is like, I feel like I've always recognized that. And some of my coworkers, which I have some of the best colleagues, I can honestly say at my law firm that I work at. And when they had watched some of my races from when I was like coming back for like those five or six races a year, I ended up winning. And he was like, oh my gosh, you were just so amazing. He was like, it's like, that's what you were meant to do. And it was like, it almost makes you a little emotional, but yeah, I wanted to say like kind of going off of some of your points because they're so valid what you were saying, but I always kind of tell people and I wrote about this in my law school personal statement is I kind of say life is like accounting in accounting for every debit, there's a credit, but in life, there's always going to be like, it's like an opportunity cost measure, right? Like, there's always going to be a sacrifice for every benefit of a decision, right? And so It's like that in anything that you make, whether it's moving or whether you're going to quit your job and found something else or like, I just feel like with what I had to do and like with my experiences in life, like, yeah, at times I gave up some things, but what did I also gain in the meantime that got me to where I am? You know, like if I didn't take that time off and like maybe network with some people, like in my business fraternity at school or got my education, like would it have led me to where I am now at the firm that I'm at now, who's helping support my race career? And at the same point in time, like you were talking about how when kids are 18 and like they have to choose, like what school are they going to or whatnot, I live by the philosophy. I think it is so crazy how we tell an 18 year old graduating high school, like we send them to college basically. A lot of kids go to college as far as like pick your major and choose what you want to do for the rest of your life. And it's like they have barely even experienced the world yet, you know, so you hear of all these teenagers and young adults that are changing their majors three or four times, which I believe is the average three times to change a college major, because as they go and travel And go to different countries and experience different cultures, they're realizing, oh, instead of business, I might want to be an art major, because I actually enjoy the creativity side, or whatnot. And so... I always thought when I was growing up that, oh, in my mindset, I was going to be a race car driver. Like if that didn't work out for me, I was like, man, I don't know what I'm going to do. Right. And then what's great with interacting with you or like being involved with women in motorsports North America is there's so much more to motorsports than just being the driver. Right. So, I mean, I don't like to think about what I'm going to do after racing because I'm not there yet. I want to enjoy what I'm doing now, but. Like I could be a team owner like Beth Peretta, or like manage a team like Marissa Andretti or uh, be involved in the marketing or mentor like Lynn. There's just so many other things. And so other possibilities like within motorsports that are endless or like another thing I could be like a legal work within like motorsports legal and do things of that nature. So Things that I wish I knew at 18 that I know now, but you know what? It's never too
1: late. <laughs> That's true. I mean, you mentioned Lynn. I mean, think about that. She became Rookie of the Year in her 40s.
0: Yes, yeah. Rookie
1: of the Year. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Right? I love those two dynamics of your story, Taylor, because I think they're very, very powerful lessons for people to kind of pause and really ponder on. I like what you said about opportunity cost. And what I always caution people, and when I say people, I think of my kiddos, right? I have two kids, 15-year-old daughter, 12-year-old son. And I often check myself as a parent where it's like, okay, who is really viewing that? Because sacrifice is a very powerful word when you really think about it, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Who is it really a sacrifice for? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because when I'm doing what I love to do, Taylor, it's not it's not really a sacrifice. And I think probably the hardest thing for me when I started to go down that journey and really find my calling
0: mm-hmm.
1: is that you – end up drifting apart from some people. Yeah. And what I find is is that it's harder for them than it was for me. And it's not that I didn't care about them. It's just where I knew I wanted to go. It didn't align with where they were okay settling for.
0: Right, And, you know, I think that comes with like when you recognize and you're pursuing what you a like want to do and realize like that might be your end game you almost have like blinders on right so anything else Mm -hmm. that like doesn't really like matter like to that end game it kind of has a way of just kind of maybe going off on its own if you will And not to say that. And sometimes
1: it's tough decisions that have to be made of letting people go. Yeah. And that's hard.
0: Yeah, for sure. Because if it's not bringing to me, like I try to eliminate toxicity, like at every point, I'm all about positive manifestation. Like you got to bring positive vibes. Like I feel like positive input reflects a positive output. Like that's how I live my life. But I can like specifically think of times to where I had like maybe friends or like certain relationships that I just felt like weren't bringing like positive energy to me. And so it's just kind of, it may be rude in saying it, but it's like, you're a toxic person and I don't want to be around you. Yeah. I know that there's probably times that I have said that, or I feel like with friendships, things of that nature, like, they come and go like i can specifically remember when i was in high school pursuing my racing career and a friend of mine like got upset because i i wasn't able to hang out with her very much and so we just kind of went our separate ways and she was kind of upset because i chose to go racing and like chose not to like go and hang out and go to the movies and stuff and I mean, at the end of the day, like reflecting on that in the grand scheme of things, like it's not that big of a deal. Friends come and go, you know, and I feel like the people who are meant to be in your life will understand that and almost kind of like pursue that passion with you and be along for the ride.
1: And sometimes it's not just friends. It can be family too. Oh yeah, for sure. And you hit the nail on the head, Taylor. It's like either you can hop on this train with me. Yeah or you cannot, and I'm okay with that, and if you're okay kind of sitting on the sidelines and watching, I'm cool with that, but you also need to be cool with the fact that if I'm gone and don't reach out to you for six months, it's nothing personal, and when we do go hang out, if we can hang out and pick up right where we left off versus the guilt trips or... I'm sure you've gone through some of those things too, right? The the guilt trips and yeah. <laughs> things about trying to make you feel bad because oh, yeah. you're doing what you love.
0: Exactly. That's why I'm like, I'm all about low maintenance friendships. I think like all of my really close and best friends, like we can go months without talking and then see each other. And then it's like, we haven't missed a beat, right? Yep. And I kind of always go by the quote too, when it comes to friends, and personal relationships. I don't know if it was Oprah that I said this. I want to make sure I give it the right credits. But it goes something along the lines of you don't want people in your life who will only ride in the limo with you. Like you want people who also sit with you at the back of the bus. Yep. Um, and so I probably didn't paraphrase that correctly. But I wanted to say that too because I am a huge kind of like positive quote nerd. So. Yeah, I am too. <laughs> I'm always spitting out quotes.
1: <laughs> Taylor, I think this is a perfect time to launch into the red line round. And what the red line round is, is just five rapid fire questions. No right or wrong answer. Just whatever pops into your head the right answer. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Who or what has been your inspiration throughout your journey in The industry?
0: I think off the top of my head, I would say Lynn St. James. She's had a tremendous impact on my career at such a young age. And she really kind of inspires me to not only do more, but I think she's just like a great icon and somebody to kind of like model yourself off of.
1: I could not agree with you more, Taylor. Where do you go or what resources do you use when you want to learn something new or you feel stuck?
0: I immediately go to my laptop and start researching, whether that be at my house, in the car, in my motorhome. I'm always on the go. I like to say I'm a modern day bad, but I'm definitely I'm always on my laptop. What excites you most about what you do? Uh Do I have to pick one thing? Is it just one thing? Whatever you want. Um, The first thing that comes to my mind is speed, but I also love the competition.
1: Right on. What is a personal habit or practice that has helped you significantly in the industry when you feel stuck or discouraged? A personal habit.
0: I think for me, I'm like I had mentioned before, I'm really into like positive quotes or watching kind of like affirming YouTube videos or kind of like motivational movies or whatnot. Um, And so when I feel like I'm in like a bit of a tough spot or like maybe having a little bit of like a negative side, if you will, I kind of like turn to those things. Or a lot of times, sometimes I'll turn to like old racing videos of me from when I was younger to just remind
1: myself of why
0: I'm doing this. That's always kind of like a big thing for me and always kind of puts me in a better mood.
1: I love that answer, Taylor. People like us, whether it's motorsports or achievers and goal setters and Go get them, go after it, right? Mm -hmm. We have a tendency to spend the majority of our time looking ahead of us Mm -hmm. to that next goal, that next thing. Yeah. And what you just said, I think is incredibly powerful that we need to remind ourselves to pause sometimes. And look back at what we have done in our accomplishments. Yeah. And I just, I really love that answer. Thanks. And that's something I definitely need to get better at for sure.
0: Can I dive off that? Can I dive off that really quick? Please. So I always am like super big on self-reflection because I always kind of think to myself, in order to know where we're going, it's important to understand where we came from. And so no matter what it is that I'm doing, like I always find self-reflection super important. So whether I'm in a tough spot or I'm having a hard time, like I know what my end goals are, but sometimes like we're human, right? Things could happen to where like we get maybe off track a little bit. And in order to get back on track, we need to just have maybe a little confidence booster or just as like reaffirmation of what we're doing why we're doing it what our purpose is because at the end of the day do any of us really know what our purposes are I mean not really but I mean we kind of innately maybe have an instinct on what that may be and so that's what we pursue right like that's why I just find it so important to like if I'm like okay like there's so much that goes into racing or motorsports or even like automotive it's like okay why are we doing this? Okay, reflect. And then once I have that positive reflection, get back on board, back on heading towards the goals, you know.
1: Love it. What's your parting advice to other fem canics finding their way in the motorsports industry?
0: And never give up. Roll up your sleeves, be gritty, go after it. Don't take no for an answer. I always tell people within the motorsports industry, if the answer is no, is going to kill you, you're in the wrong industry, find something else because you'll get the answer no more often than not and just work really, really hard. Is there really an easy line of work to be in? No, but I feel like motorsports is definitely one of the tougher ones. And so you just have to prove yourself. And so work hard, be persistent and get after it.
1: Taylor, where and how can people connect with you?
0: Yes. So I am on a lot of social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, a YouTube channel, my website, taylorferns.com. And all my tag handles for the most part are at Taylor Ferns. Be sure to check out my social channels, my website, sign up for my newsletter, I also now have a column in Sprint and Midget in Speed Sport Magazine. So now it's in their weekly newsletter. Um, So once a month. So yeah, follow along on my journey and uh, hope you enjoyed it. And the conversation, Jamie, this was great.
1: No, Taylor, thanks for being in the driver's seat, my friend. I was excited to kind of dive into this. And it's crazy to think in the not so distant future, you're going to be a lawyer. What's your area of focus? Do you know?
0: Um, so I haven't decided with law school, you don't have majors kind of as you would in undergrad or in my master's, like certain concentrations, but I think that I have an idea of what I'm, I want to do, um, and hopefully stay within the motorsports realm. We'll see what shakes out. We'll see what shakes out. Cause I know my firm wants me to stay and work there, but they're in personal injury law. So I tell
1: them, I just don't know what I want to do yet. <laughs> Baby steps. Who knows where it will take you?
0: Yeah. I mean, you never know. Life could change in six months and maybe I'll want to do be a tax attorney. I mean, I, that's kind of a far stretch, but you just don't know. Life could throw me a curveball. Taylor Ferns, race car driver and team owner, and I'm a mechanic.
1: Sonora Early is in the driver's seat next. Sonora is the owner of Clamp Tight Tools, an innovative tool that is widely used in the automotive, marine, and aerospace fields. Be sure to tune in next time as Sonora shares her amazing journey as a businesswoman and an inventor. Until next time, Femcanics. Thanks for listening to the Femcanic Garage podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Femcanic Garage. Check out our website fmcanic.com for swag and the links to the resources shared during this episode. If you want to help grow this community, subscribe, rate, and review. And most importantly, share this podcast. Spread the word. This is Jamie B. signing off. Are you a Femcanic?